and it's a great pleasure to welcome Mr. Anatole Levin, who's professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College and an eminent journalist. Anatole has just recently been writing on Pakistan for some time, which is now topical for obvious reasons, but also has written on the United States, Right or Wrong, a book which is going to be republished and reissued in the revised edition and also written extensively on Russia and Chechnya. So let me, let's welcome Anatole Levin to talk about Pakistan, a hard state to launch his new book. Thank you very much, sir. Th thank you all for coming and uh, many, yes, oh, sorry, very good. Um, uh, and uh, many thanks to the LSE for inviting me. Now, like uh, every expert on Pakistan worth his or her salt, I do, of course, know exactly uh, who sheltered bin Laden uh, in Abbottabad and why. Uh, in fact, he told me himself, so himself over several glasses of whiskey a few years ago. However, to find that out, you have to buy the book, um, which is on sale after the meeting. In this lecture, I will talk about something different, partly to be absolutely honest, because I'm sick of the sound of my own voice uh, talking about bin Laden and Pakistan and the war on terror over the past week. Um, of course, we can talk about that in the discussion after my lecture. But uh, what this lecture will be about is a related, of course, but different issue. It is a question of Pakistan, the supposedly failed or failing state, uh, and what is, in fact, the nature of the Pakistani state system uh, and the political system, and especially uh, the role within that system of the closely interlinked factors of patronage and kinship. Uh, I'll also talk about the way in which the Pakistani military is and is not part uh, of the uh, patronage system, and the way in which it is and is not uh, gives the military its power. In the book, I argue strongly that this system, while on the face of it disastrous, does in fact do a great deal to give Pakistan its quite surprising resilience in the face of potential revolution or disintegration, while on the other hand, in the longer term, being a potentially disastrous uh, factor when it comes to the development and progress of Pakistan as a society. Sorry, give myself some water. The original title of the book, um, the, the working title, was How Pakistan Works, and that in some ways still describes the, the book best. Uh, I like that title, both because it's descriptive, but also because I thought it was provocative, because, of course, most people think that Pakistan doesn't work. Uh, my view is that Pakistan does work after its own fashion, and the epigraph is taken from Galileo, e pur si muove, and yet it moves, kind of. It trundles along, as I often say. The title now is Pakistan, a hard country. Uh, this um, was chosen to reflect uh, the toughness of the country, as I say, in the face of various threats, and also the hard challenges that it poses for Western policy. The actual phrase, however, is one that I've heard 
many times over the years uh, in Pakistan, since my time there as a journalist in the 1980s, either a hard country or a difficult country. In a great many cases, possibly even a majority, uh, it's been used to me by someone who has recently had a number of people shot. The first time I heard that phrase was from uh, a member of parliament uh, in 1988, recently elected for uh, the Pakistan People's Party of Benazir Bhutto, um, who explained to me over dinner on his estate uh, why he had had no choice but to have five people killed that year, uh, belonging to a rival political family, uh, because they had previously ambushed and killed his nephew and two of his men. And as he said, in this country, uh, if you can't show that you can hit back if attacked, you're finished, he said. You have to understand this is a hard country. The last time I heard that phrase was in 2009 in southern Punjab from a uh, superintendent of police there who was explaining why, given the weakness of Pakistan's judicial system uh, and the well-based fear uh, of the courts when it came to convicting terrorists, he was talking about the sectarian terrorists of the Lashkar-e-Jangvi movement, if you wanted to make any impression on these people uh, and force them to back off from some of their activities. Uh, the only option was what is called in South Asia, in India, as well as Pakistan, encounter killings. In other words, you take them out into a field in the middle of the night and you shoot them in the back of the head. You have to understand, he said, this is a hard country. Uh, incidentally, shooting people in the back of the head has been very much the approach of the Pakistani military. In a genuinely successful uh, but undoubtedly also fairly ruthless campaign against the Pakistani Taliban in the district of Swat, which I revisited in March, if anyone's interested. Now, this makes Pakistan sound a, a Hobbesian kind of place, and in many ways it is. However, as I see it, the system in Pakistan also brings out two very important criticisms or variations on Hobbes. Firstly, that as anyone who has studied anthropology or indeed anyone who has seen the series The Sopranos knows, any long established system uh, containing a permanent latent threat of violence also develops norms, socially if not legally sanctioned rules for limiting that violence. In fact, the state of nature cannot continue indefinitely in terms of completely anarchical or unlimited violence. Uh, and this is very true of the, the system on the ground in Pakistan. The second is this. Um, Hobbes, of course, famously describes the state of nature, or man in the state of nature, um, the life of man, as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Now, the last four may be true. The first is not. Um, the life of man in the state of nature is very rarely in the long term solitary because you don't last long. The life of man in the state of nature is or fairly soon becomes based in a clan or group for self-defense, for collective defense. And um, a, a, um, an epigraph for part of the book which... Um, uh, unfortunately, we, um, we had to omit because it would have cost too much. also doesn't come from Pakistan at all. Um, it comes from Bruce Springsteen. I don't know how many of you have heard Bruce Springsteen. If you have, you may know his song Highway Patrolman, the refrain of which goes, a man turns his back on his family. He just ain't no good. Uh, that is a very, very common sentiment 
in Pakistan. And if in Pakistan what has been very inaccurately called feudalism, and when I use feudalism in my book, I always surround it with the inverted commas, if this remains uh, so remarkably strong and enduring, central to the system and central to its resilience in the face of revolution, uh, this is above all because of the link between the classes called feudal and the kinship groups to which they belong. Uh, and the system in many ways revolves around the uses of kinship when it comes to the redistribution of patronage, but also when it comes to protection. Uh, and protection not just against other kinship groups, but also against the forces of the state, which of course in many ways are themselves thoroughly predatory and anarchical in their behavior, uh, especially of course the police and the courts. Now these human resource networks, if you like, in Pakistan, are by no means exclusively made up of kinfolk. But at least the ones I've studied, uh, a majority have had some kind of kinship group at their core. There is a saying in Punjab that a man who doesn't have a strong family behind him can't be a strong man. He can't be strong in any other way. Kinship is extremely uh, important. Of course, it, in this, Pakistan is in its own variant, um, only one of a very considerable number of countries around the world which are still whose systems are still in many ways based upon kinship. And that leads me to another issue which involves Hobbes um, or Hobbesian ideas, and that is the one of sovereignty. Because it seems to me that, I mean, Afghanistan is even more clear, uh, strongly marked from this point of view. But in many ways, to understand the inner workings of the Pakistani system, you have to understand that in the minds of the people, the state is not fully sovereign, in a way that the, sovereigns, uh, that the modern state, either in its authoritarian or totalitarian or even democratic form, is regarded as sovereign um, in, shall we say, what we are arrogant enough to call the modern world. In Pakistan, still more in Afghanistan, of course, uh, in the countryside at least, or large parts of the countryside, you have a situation which is in fact morally closer to that of the Middle Ages in Britain or Europe, in which to a considerable extent real moral sovereignty still resides in the family uh, and its leader. Uh, when it comes to um, its uh, role in the judicial system, uh, when it comes to primary loyalty, when it comes to the, um, to the reality of politics, and even, of course, in some areas much more than others, when it comes to armed force. When it comes to the use of effective armed force on the ground in large parts of Pakistan, the state does not meet Max Weber's criterion that it have a monopoly of armed force. Tanks, aircraft, anti-aircraft missiles, artillery, yes but not when it comes to the Kalashnikov and the ability to use that Kalashnikov against your neighbours, if necessary. This also, I think, brings out why, and here, of course, I'm stretching far, far beyond Pakistan. In many ways, if you study customary law, tribal law in certain parts of the country, you find, and this law is um, still in many ways, these laws, because they differ greatly from area to area, 
but still. These are still the foundation of much behavior in Pakistan. There's an excellent book, if anyone is interested, uh, called Justice in Practice, The Legal Ethnography of a Punjabi Village by Mohammed Azam Chowdhury. Reading that, an unwary reader would think that this portrait of the supremacy of customary law uh, was set somewhere in the deep, deep Punjabi countryside, you know, in Rahimia Khan or something. It's not. Um, it's set uh, within 10 miles of the second biggest city in Punjab, Faisalabad, um, and one of the biggest industrial centers in Pakistan. So the, and within this customary law, the kinship group is sovereign. Customary law, in the end, largely revolves around negotiations between those kinship groups. Uh, and that is why this customary law, in many ways, resembles much more closely traditional international law than it does the modern conception of domestic law. That is to say, it is not about absolute standards of justice. It is about, it is conditioned, of course, by social norms, moral and cultural attitudes. But in the end, what it is about is negotiation and the restoration through negotiation and compensation of social peace and order. Um, this also means, of course, that while on the one hand certainly conditioned by social and cultural and religious norms, uh, it is also heavily conditioned, as is in, uh, decisions in international law, by relative power. That is why another title of the book, which was abandoned in the process of its writing, uh, was Pakistan, the Negotiated State. Um, the idea here being that in Pakistan, power is not exercised principally um, through regular chains of command and by obedience to fixed and stated laws, but to a very great extent, uh, the workings of power and state power have to be negotiated with forces within society uh, if you want to get anything done. And any close acquaintance with the workings of the police in Pakistan, once again, more in some areas than in others, uh, reveals this very strongly, um, that the police ends up actually negotiating with local society, often uh, to mediate crimes or battles between different groups rather than to punish them, while, of course, taking a hefty commission for itself in the process. Uh, one, and, of course, a key aspect of this is that anyone... This, once again, reflects the misuse, if you will, of the, the term feudal and, and feudalism. Everyone with any power or influence to do so in Pakistan manipulates the police, uh, either through kinship links or personal links or, of course, simply through money, or, if none of those, well, all the time, whether that works or not, through lying. Uh, a fa one of the fascinating things I, I found in my research on Pakistan is that in Pakistani courts, um, you can swear in the words of the Quran, but you cannot swear on the book itself. I, I asked why this was banned, and I was told they'd lie anyway, and that would bring religion into disrepute, um, which you're not supposed to do. Important to note here, however, that the reason why people lie, and in any case involving two families, you will have literally dozens of witnesses on both sides, the vast majority of them probably completely mendacious in their testimony. 
Important to note, however, that in their own minds, they are possibly breaking the law, but they are doing so uh, in response to a higher law, which is, of course, loyalty to your family, to your relatives. Um, and while, like everybody else, um, I have uh, been extremely harsh on the Pakistani police um, in the course of my book, albeit pointing out that the Indian police is really uh, no better in many areas, um, I, I have also asked readers uh, to spare a thought for the difficulty of the police operating in circumstances like this. So one critical aspect of the Pakistani system is protection. Um, protection against the, all the forces in Pakistani society which can harm you in various ways. The second critical aspect is patronage. The entire system revolves very largely around extracting patronage from the state and distributing it, of course, to yourself um, and also to your followers, um, kinfolk but also uh, others. Now, of course, there are, I mean, as pa Pakistani elections reveal, public opinion makes a difference, uh, especially in the cities. Um, waves of public opinion against uh, particular governments do bring down those governments. But when those waves have receded again, you find that the basic structures of patronage around which the system revolves are still there in place. And if you look at the rise of political families in Pakistan, and it's important to note that in much of Punjab, though not admittedly Sindh or Baluchistan, um, many of the families are in fact new families. They're not ancient feudal families, though they may have married into them. Uh, it very, it, it almost as a, as a general pattern goes like this. You build up some local base in terms of money and influence. You then use that to get a position of influence within your kinship group. On the basis of that, you get into politics, initially by attaching yourself to some local faction and through that to a party. And then once you get yourself elected to the Provincial or National Assembly, you use that, your position there to extract patronage from the state, or corruption if you will. Which you then, of course, however, and this is terribly important, have to redistribute to some extent to your, uh, your followers. Uh, it's important to note in this regard that, uh, of course, especially in Punjab, um, but even to a degree in the much more autocratic tribal systems of Sindh and Baluchistan, you have to redistribute it, even to your kinship group, because there is always a rival waiting. Even in what appears to be an autocratic tribe, there is always a potential rival waiting in the wings to attack you if you can't keep your followers on board by giving them patronage. Now, how far... I mean, one of the very interesting questions in Pakistan and of crucial importance for the future is how far this is being changed uh, by urbanisation. And the answer is, we don't really know. The reason for that is that the basic essential studies have not been done. Um, I haven't tried the LSE library on this, but if you go to SOAS um, and look for the shelves marked Punjab, you will find a big case on one side, which is about Indian Punjab, 
and you will find a tiny shelf on the other side, which is about Pakistani Punjab. Uh, despite the fact that Pakistani Punjab is, oh, it must be getting on for 10 times the size of Indian Punjab. The basic research on the ground into urbanization, amongst many other things, has not been done. Outside Karachi, and Karachi is a very special case, of course, because Karachi is principally, the population is principally made up of migrants from, from elsewhere, um, not the essentially local migrant population in Punjab. In the cities, this nexus of patronage and kinship and protection uh, is certainly weaker than in the countryside. But kinship is very important in the cities too. Um, classic studies of the Pakistani community in Britain suggest that it's extremely important in Oxford, Bradford, Manchester, not just in Faisalabad, Lahore, and Rahimia Khan. It's also true, of course, that still in Pakistan, most urban people are relatively recent migrants from the countryside and retain close links to their villages and to rural patterns. Uh, and finally, uh, well, the, uh, the, the protection that they need from the police is much, um, is much the same. And, of course, most of them are in, uh, not in what we would see as modern, formal, regular employment, but in various kinds of informal employment, often family-dominated. This is also why the line that land reform is the answer to everything in order to destroy these feudals uh, is, in my view, considerably exaggerated. The best book on politics in Punjab, which was written getting on for two generations ago now, um, was by Joyce Pettigrew, and it was called Robber Nobleman, The Political System of the Sikh Jats. Now, the interesting thing is she could, to a considerable extent, have left out the Sikh and just talked about the Jats. In other words, the patterns she described are not entirely, but in many ways, as true of the Jats on the, Punjabi side, on the Pakistani side of the border as they are on the Indian side of the border. Now, in India, of course, you did have land reform, and yet she still calls them robber noblemen because of the complex of cultural attitudes which they reflect. Um, and, of course, in India, here you are not talking about ancient families or big landowners. Um, you are talking about middle-sized farmers, but exercising their power, their patronage, their kinship links in many of the same ways. And one of my favorite um, quotes on the subject of the Jats was by a, uh, a Chowdhury politician in, um, in Pakistani Punjab. And I asked him um, how you get to be, how you get the title of Chowdhury term of respect among the Jats. Um, this was when I was new to Pakistan. I said, look, you know, I, I understand how you inherit the title of Sardar if you're a Legari or whatever. But anybody among the Jats seems to be able to call himself uh, Chowdhury. How do you get to be a Chowdhury? And he said, oh, it's very simple. You get to be a Chowdhury among the Jats when you can call yourself Chowdhury without all the other Jats laughing at you. Uh, in other words, you know, anyone can get it, but there is an informal system whereby you know who is respected and who is not. Uh, so, same on both sides of the border. Now, when it comes to the stability of this system, the resilience that it gives to Pakistan, one of the most interesting statistics that I came about, across in researching this book um, was Pakistan's rating for social inequality under the Gini coefficient. Now, in mentioning the Gini coefficient, I'm being extremely brave 
in the LSE. Because if anyone in the audience wants to be really unkind to me, you could ask me how the Gini coefficient works, but I very much hope you won't. Like so many things in economics, we have to take it on blind faith. Um, when in Pakistan, of course, the faith may be blinder than in many other places, given local statistics, but still. The point is that most remarkably, given the stereotypes about Pakistan, Pakistan's rating under the Gini coefficient is astonishingly low. 30, if I remember rightly, it's in the book. Um, much lower than India's, Nigeria's, Russia's, and the United States. Now, why? Well, two things. First, of course, Pakistan doesn't extra either extract or produce the kind of things which would give you huge fortunes by international standards, things to sell to the metropolises of the world. Instead, if you want to make a lot of money in Pakistan, most of the time you have to steal it from the state, basically. Now, the problem here is that in order to steal it from the state, once again, you need supporters. You need supporters to help you get into Parliament, to make yourself useful, including under military regimes. Um, because military regimes, sooner or later, come to depend on these local politicians just as much as civilian regimes do. So you need supporters. How do you keep your supporters? By redistributing patronage to them. If you don't, they don't stay your supporters, even if they are your kinfolk, because there is always a rival, as I say, waiting in the wings. So, this is uh, admittedly a very flat pyramid um, in which much more sticks at the top than goes down. But a surprising amount does filter down in various ways down the system. At the absolutely basic level, you have the Degh tradition in the, in the villages, uh, whereby to demonstrate their wealth, their religion, their charity, and of course, their power and grandeur, uh, local landowning politician families will give village feasts to celebrate the birth of a son, the achievement of a job, passing an exam, some other happy event. And poor people in those villages can, keep, can often keep themselves fed for a surprising part of the year by going to these feasts and carrying away the food to feed their families. Patronage trickling down, of course, socially and culturally justified as well. Hence, as I say, crucial to maintaining the stability and the resilience of the system. But absolutely terrible when it comes to the ability of the state to promote modern development in Pakistan. Um, the power of the elites entrenched through kinship and patronage and represented in the national and provincial assemblies prevents the state from raising revenue in the first place and milks away much of what it does raise, uh, with the result that Pakistan has the lowest uh, rates of tax collection in South Asia, less than 10%. India raises more than 17% now. Um, and once again, uh, this, if not initially true under military regimes, quickly becomes as true under military regimes as it done, does under civilian regimes. Uh, I had a, well, it probably take me too long to quote it, but I had a very interesting interview with Mebubul Haq, the former finance minister under Zia, about this. It's completely candid. You know, we too ended up compromising with all these, um, these local forces because in the end... Whoever runs the state in Pakistan, the state is weak, um, and these forces within society are very strong. If you look at Musharraf, when Musharraf first came in, rates of revenue collection did 
grow. Uh, and levels of corruption sank. Uh, the state income increased partly because um, initially uh, he did go toughly after politicians and, of course, their supporters uh, who had taken out state loans and never repaid them, which is one of the principal ways in which you simply milk the state for cash. Then Musharraf decided that for the sake of national and international legitimacy, uh, he had to um, do deals with the politicians. He had to hold elections and therefore do deals with the politicians. One of the reasons in Pakistan why this becomes necessary uh, under a military government is the fact that while, of course, not nearly as varied and federalized as India, um, and with one province, uh, which is to some extent in a position to dominate the country. In the end, every regime in Pakistan finds that it cannot simply rule by decree in the other provinces. It needs to make compromises with the provincial elites. So what happened when Musharraf decided he had to go for elections? He made deals with exactly the same range of former politicians, and what happened? He let them off taxes, he forgave them their loans, levels of revenue collection re um, returned to their historical norm. And so this is a reciprocal effect. Um, the political system keeps the state weak, and a weak state cannot change the system. Now this brings me to the question of the power of the military in Pakistan, because of course Every generation or so, there has been this dream in the Pakistani population that a military government will change the Pakistani system. Now, there was perhaps a chance of this uh, under Ayub Khan in the 1960s. He founded largely on what then was, of course, a, a much, much more difficult federal problem. Uh, in, in Pakistan, which was the existence of East Pakistan within the same state, uh, which would probably have wrecked anybody's attempt to modernize Pakistan, but certainly helped bring him to an end. Um, since then, there have, of course, been two uh, military regimes uh, of very different characters. One, of course, um, in, in terms of ideology, Islamist under Zia, one ostensibly liberal reformist under Musharraf. And they both had this aspiration of developing Pakistan economically. Well, indeed, every government has that. And this has been believed in by a good many people in the Pakistani business community, certain intellectuals, and indeed, to a degree, the population in general. Now, where does the prestige of the military, where does this belief in military efficiency, honesty, come from? A apart from, of course, the issue of nationalism and the military's role in defending the country uh, against India. Um, well, it comes from the fact that the military is seen internally, in its own workings, as honest and efficient. Although I will say... My one reference to bin Laden in this lecture, not in the discussion, of course, uh, that what has happened over bin Laden has given that idea a pretty hard knock. Uh, but anyway, in the past, at least, there has been this impression of the military as internally honest and efficient. And it's also true that in limited ways and for limited periods, civilian governments uh, have taken the military and have used them effectively in a variety of civilian roles. The census, the last census, was largely carried out by the military because the state couldn't do it on its own. They've taken over particular state institutions and run them for a while. And so after a given period of civilian government in which nothing seems to be working much, there is this idea the military will come in and change things. Now, the first question is, 
why does the military, compared to any other institution in Pakistan, work relatively efficiently and honestly internally? Well, the reason is that it has, in fact, walled itself off to a degree from the normal workings or the workings elsewhere of the kinship and patronage systems. How has it done so? Well, it's done so, as I suggest in the book, by turning itself, in effect, into a giant kinship network and extracting an enormous amount of patronage from the state for itself. Um, you know, the, the standard term for a kinship group in, in Pakistan, but it's not that no, only that I can't really uh, explain what it means, nobody can explain what it means, but it's biradari. Biradari, of course, comes from the ultimate root, brotherhood. The military is a brotherhood. Uh, and it has used its position under civilian as well as military rule to extract, comparatively speaking, a huge proportion of whatever limited revenues the state can extract from what is now a population of almost 200 million people and essentially distributed it to 500,000 or so. That's one side of it. You only have to visit a military headquarters of any kind, any military operation, to see the importance of money, the fact that the, the military, you know, I mean, if you look at the incompetence of so many civilian efforts um, uh, on the part of the civilian state, well, it doesn't help that there are so few computers, whereas if you go into a military office, you know, there are computers everywhere and, and people trained to use it. So they have a great deal of money compared to the rest of the state. But that in itself would not be enough. Um, if this were simply a Nigerian-style army, it would have taken that money and just stolen it for the generals, sent it off to bank accounts, luxury goods in London or whatever. The ethos of the military, pretty strong ethos when it comes to its own internal workings, uh, does help to guarantee that the money is spent in an orderly and regular way on the military. Uh, that it is distributed, shall we say, by means which the rest of the population might well see as corrupt, but which are not, in fact, strictly speaking, illegal. Uh, a bit like Western generals leaving office only to take jobs in the military-industrial complex, one could say. Uh, and it is distributed to some extent all the way down the system to the NCOs and the privates as well, which is, of course, of critical importance in warding off the possibility of mutiny and keeping them loyal and disciplined. The basic equation was set out to me by a Pakistani journalist, but everybody knows it. He talked about two officers of his acquaintance who were going to retire soon, one a colonel in the army, uh, one, a senior superintendent of police. And he said, the colonel, when he retires, uh, he's going to have a decent pension, but that's not actually the most important thing. Um, a job is waiting for him in a military-controlled or military-influenced industry. Um, and uh, above all, uh, he has a plot of land in what has become a fabulously valuable part of a city. Um, and he can build a house there, and then if he has enough money from his other employment, he can live there himself, uh, or of course he can sell it and live on the proceeds for the rest of his life and pass it on to his children. So he doesn't need to take bribes. And since he also has a fairly strong feeling that as a soldier he shouldn't take bribes, he doesn't. The superintendent of police, of course, has no such insurance mechanism for his retirement, so what does he do? Of course, he takes bribes. He's part of the whole corruption and patronage network. But that only works as long as the soldiers remain soldiers within their sphere. As soon as the soldiers go out and 
take over the whole state and try to change the state insofar as they do, they just melt into the same old system and essentially nothing changes. So I've been accused by some critics of of being um, too kind to military rule in Pakistan. That's not actually true. But it must be said, I don't think that military rule is worse than civilian rule in Pakistan. I just don't think that in the end it's very different, actually, which in some ways is even more depressing, but still. It would be very different if the Pakistani military were capable essentially of doing an Ataturk, or there are some other examples around the world, uh, and really creating a mass nationalist movement with a political party, which they would then use to smash down the resistance of various local elites. Um, Simply for reasons of time, I've left out the whole religious element, but here we can uh, talk about that in the discussion as well. Um, and replace it with uh, a much more popular, uh, much less elite-dominated, modernizing politics in Pakistan. But of course they can't do that because Pakistan isn't a nation and can't generate that kind of nationalism. I mean, at its simplest, um, how would you run a party like this? You'd have to use retired officers as local political cadres to go in and organize such a party. Well, not just in Sindh, but even in southern Punjab. If you send in somewhere from the Potwa Plateau uh, to try to organize a local political party in order to smash the resistance of a local tribal chieftain, he isn't going to last very long. And nor, by the way, is Pakistan, because that is something that really could provoke the disintegration of the country. Um, and that is, you know, brings me back to the resilience of the system. When it comes to desire for modernization, and specifically land reform, by the way, be careful what you wish for. Um, The point about the existing elites, and incidentally, uh, when I talked about the more egalitarian and dynamic aspect of social change, I was talking, of course, about Punjab principally. (coughs) Uh, In Sindh, still more in Baluchistan, land really does matter. But um, while the domination of these chieftains of kinship groups in Baluchistan and Sindh is absolutely appalling when it comes uh, to local progress and development because they are so closely integrated into this national patronage network that I have described. It also keeps them in a way Pakistani in practice. So many times I've... um, heard very nationalist talk from local politicians in Sindh and Baluchistan, only on a little, um, shall we say, deeper digging uh, to find that, of course, they are taking a great deal of money and patronage from the Pakistani state and are certainly not going to walk the walk when it comes to rebellion against that state. Sweep them out of the way and replace them with some kind of big peasant, lower middle class politics, you are much more likely to get some form of provincial revolt uh, against Pakistan. So, in my view, and here we come back uh, briefly to Pakistan's security situation, in the short to medium term, Pakistan is not uh, a failed or failing state and is in fact likely to survive unless the United States really loses its temper and contributes to Pakistan's destruction, Um, something which I trust is not likely, but the events of the past week have certainly brought potentially a step forward. We can talk about that in in the discussion. In the longer term, however, 
this system that I have described may well be fatal to Pakistan, uh, at least as a state, conceivably even in the long term as an organized human society. This is because of the nexus between population, lack of development, lack of progress, and water in Pakistan. And one of the most frightening documents I read um, in the course of my researches was not, in fact, to do with terrorism or extremism or the role of the military or the ISI. It was the World Bank report of 2004 on the water situation in Pakistan and the various researches which have come out of and followed that. Uh, according to the World Bank, um, to their estimates, uh, by the middle of this century, um, Pakistan will have a population of around 335 million people. Uh, unless it can act much more effectively, well not act, and unless things happen, uh, which bring the Pakistani birth rate down much more steeply than has been the case so far. And there are no extra available sources of water. Um, this is uh, naturally an arid and semi-arid part of the world, with the one exception, of course, of the Indus system. Uh, this is simply too much for the population uh, for, for the water resources to support, unless uh, a great many things can change. Because, of course, it's important to note this is not, strictly speaking, a Malthusian argument. Uh, there is actually enough water potentially there to support even a population of 335 million people. The reason why there isn't at present is, above all, appalling levels of wastage by the system, uh, an agricultural system, above all, um, which is extremely incompetent uh, when it comes to water use, um, and the lowest rates of rainwater harvesting, amongst other things, in South Asia, which in turn uh, are among the, um, uh, the worst in the world. Uh, now, all of those things could be remedied, uh, but I fear that to mobilise the resources, the voluntary labour, and the agricultural innovation to bring about the changes that are necessary would require not just a very different kind of Pakistani state, but a different, very different kind of Pakistani society. Um, and as I hope this lecture has contributed to explaining, achieving that is going to be very, very difficult. Thank you. Right, thank you very much for a very thought-provoking presentation, which I'm sure will give rise to a lot of questions and comments. So the floor is now open for questions and comments, and please be brief. So who would like to start? Several hands, so let me start here. Yeah, you You mentioned that uh, the Pakistan army has, of course, been at the forefront of uh, basically controlling Pakistan. Do you feel that despite it being the most uh, stable institution, has, if anything, caused the destruction of all other institutions and would inevitably cause greater damage if it hasn't done already to its existence and its future, economically more than anything else? <laughs> Well, um, in a phrase which perhaps is, is likely to give pleasure neither to Pakistanis nor Indians, um, I once described 
the Pakistani army in, pa in Pakistan is fulfilling the role of Lord Shiva as preserver and destroyer. I mean, on the one hand, I think it is fair to say that the country would not exist without the army. It wouldn't actually have disintegrated long ago. Um, certainly, uh, although um, the army itself can be in part blamed uh, for fostering these groups in the first place, um, it has been the military, of course, which has fought back against the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban rebellion uh, in, um, in recent years and has suffered very heavily in doing so, but has won some very major successes. So that's one side of it. Um, when it comes to how far it has destroyed other institutions, that is true to an extent. Um, but I think if you look at, say, the Philippines, um, a country with certain analogies to Pakistan, in, though only certain ones when it comes to its social and political structures, uh, the Philippines also being a country, of course, which has not experienced military rule now for almost 30 years. Um, you can say that Pakistan's civilian institutions have also done a pretty good job of destroying themselves, or if not destroying themselves, then preventing themselves from actually developing in ways, uh, well, in ways that will bring progress to the country. Um, the, uh, I would say that if that military rule, on the one hand, brings certain very, very limited greater efficiencies, on the other hand, to a limited degree, because as I say, I don't see civilian and military rule in the end as so very different on the ground. Um, where it is chiefly negative um, is that it tends to be worse for, for, for relations between the provinces. Uh, because the military, A, I mean, almost by definition increases provincial resentment because it is more centralized. Um, but secondly, insofar as it is seen as Punjab, as dominated by northern Punjab, uh, it automatically raises greater resentment in the other provinces of Pakistan, whereas a civilian government, to some extent, does have to be more compromising there. Uh, although, only to some extent, uh, because of course... Um, a government of the uh, of the opposition, what is now the opposition, Pakistani Muslim League, um, is also very likely to be seen in other pro provinces as a form of Punjabi domination. So, uh, incidentally, perhaps I should just say in description of the book that um, there's something here for everybody. Um, <coughs> Graham Allison in Harvard, um, where I spoke a couple of weeks ago, <coughs> he said that um, if you um, if what you're looking for is a slim volume. Uh, with simple explanations of Pakistani politics and society and security policy, uh, and easy solutions for Western policy, then this book is not for you. Um, uh, it does, however, have an essay on understanding the system as a whole, if you like, an essay on the main themes of Pakistani and, indeed, Muslim history in South Asia, um, one section on the main structures of Pakistan, including studies of the judicial system, rival religious traditions in the country, the army, and the political system, chapters on each of the main provinces and the balances between them. And then the last section is about extremism in Pakistan uh, and its threat to the country and Pakistan's role in Afghanistan. So a little bit for everybody, uh, including, of course, as I say, the full explanation of bin Laden, which I mentioned in the introduction. All right, over there.
<clears throat> Congress is threatening to withdraw the billions of aid that it gives to uh, Pakistan. Uh, what I wonder about is what is the role of this aid in, in this um, system that you've so wonderfully described? Well, the aid, um, uh, of course, is uh, uh, an additional source of patronage. Um, I mean, in Islamabad, when it seemed wrongly that an enormous amount of American aid uh, was on the way, um, pe people would, um, the political classes were described as licking their collective lips um, in expectation. Uh, however, it must be noted that when it comes to congressionally mandated civilian aid to Pakistan, there hasn't been much from the United States. Very, very little of the whole Kerry Lugar package has yet been delivered. And in my view, after the past two weeks, it most probably won't be. The, the, um, you know, so many criteria, conditions have been put in place. Um, the two areas which are important uh, are American presidentially mandated aid to the, the Pakistani military which has been of great importance in sort of keeping them on side, and America's goodwill in the IMF, um, the, the willingness of America to back continued money from the international financial institutions to keep Pakistan afloat. Now, the problem when it comes to pressure from America on this uh, can increasingly uh, be described in one word, and that's China. America is no longer the only player in town when it comes to international aid. And if you've been following any of the news of, you know, of China and Pakistan in the past um, couple of weeks, uh, there are increasing uh, indications that China um, may in fact uh, step up to the plate to match or to compensate Pakistan for any cuts made by the United States. Very important in this context to remember that when you think about it, Pakistan is China's only ally. Very interesting. All this, this talk, quite rightly, about the rise of China, but a tremendous weakness of China on the international stage compared to the United States is that it doesn't have any allies, unless you count North Korea, which is a sort of ghastly liability. Um, and Pakistan, of course, is useful to China to balance against India, but also, uh, of course, increasingly as an energy route to give China sort of backup security against any uh, conceivable Indian or, or U.S. Um, naval blockade of the routes from the Persian Gulf. Now, up to now, um, China's help has, in fact, been substantial but nonetheless limited. And, of course, it's been closely geared to China's own needs, especially, of course, the construction of the port at Guada. Um, China has, in fact, been playing a very cautious hand towards Pakistan in recent years. President Zadari has been, I believe, six times to China and has got very little out of it, uh, partly because the Chinese you know, also know about the workings of the Pakistani patronage system, as I have described it. Um, and they don't trust the Pakistani state much from that point of view. On the other hand, if the indications from the past 10 days or so uh, are accurate, um, 10 days? No, eight days, uh, then there is a chance um, that China will uh, back Pakistan in this. Uh, at which point, um, America's ability, already limited ability, to bring economic pressure to bear on Pakistan will become even more limited. Right, okay, at the back. I wonder if you could explain, expand a little bit on why you think water is going to be such a 
critical variable for the future of Pakistan. In the reasons you gave for the squeeze, you can see that agricultural systems and how they use water might be difficult to reform. But controlling high wastage rates, harvesting more, why does the system that you described prevent rational development on those fronts? Mm -hmm. Well, I think looking at, at, at the Pakistani approach to building <coughs> dams is very interesting from that point of view. Um, it's, uh, what's, what's the acronym? BNR, I think it is. Build, neglect, rebuild. Um, big uh, dam and, and reservoir projects, in some cases, of course, <laughs> then which are planned but never actually get built um, because of provincial opposition, the Calabar uh, Dam being the obviously the biggest example. Uh, but also, of course, this, is, this kind of, of, of project is great for the patronage system because it involves a great deal of money given to contractors, to constructors. That is ideal for the politicians. Everybody benefits from that. Whereas, of course, basically mobilizing lots of unemployed peasants with picks and shovels uh, to build small earthen dams for rainwater harvesting is much less profitable for everybody involved. So that is one way. Um, that, in turn, brings one to the workings of the system. You know, you, I mean, the classic way, going back, I mean, lit, well, more than pre-classical, 5,000 years or so, is, of course, if you can mobilize the population in one way or another, uh, to, you know, to do it without having to be paid, without big contractors. Uh, but, um, of course, this, the, the nature of the Pakistani system does not allow either the amount of state power necessary to do that or, indeed, the amount of social trust necessary to do it because, of course, the automatic response of any Pakistani farmer asked to do work for nothing is to ask who it will benefit, and he will have a damn good idea that, in, in his case, um, the benefit will probably go to somebody else, you know, to the, the, the local landowner politician and so forth. I mean, one reason why nobody wants to pay taxes, you know, they see no benefit from it. If the taxes that have been paid, for example, have produced a school in the village which is being used by the local landowner politician as a cowshed, doesn't encourage you to pay your taxes. Um, e even if your, your cousin has got a job as the cowherd, you know, um, and therefore has benefited from the patronage to some degree. Uh, but, um, you know, what, the, the workings of the uh, of the system. I mean, that, that is on the state side. Um, then there is the revenue collection. I mean, one figure which has been banded around, um, if it came to uh, an attempt to rebuild Pakistan's water infrastructure along present lines and by present methods, is in the region of $170 billion. Now, there is no way that the Pakistani state can raise that in taxes. I mean, even if actually it could raise taxes at all, which it can't, but you know, even if it doubled, it would still be short of that. And as I say, other approaches are held back by the nature of the state and society. And then, of course, when it comes to agriculture, well, there, I mean, one shouldn't be in any way uh, absolutist, let alone quasi-racist about this, because if you look at the Green Revolution, um, principally in Punjab, but in some other places as well, uh, Pakistani farmers did actually uh, adopt very new techniques, uh, new materials, new approaches, because they saw 
the tremendous incentives um, for, for doing so. Um, I mean, sooner or later, water too, will Im water shortages, will impose their own incentives. The problem is that with the water table dropping as fast as it is in certain parts of the country, it may be too late, frankly, um, in considerable areas. Um, the second thing is that if you want to get, you know, to get ahead of absolute shortages, um, you're going to have to uh, basically find some way of pricing water. Well, that is as unpopular um, in the countryside as is agricultural taxes. Politically impossible under the present uh, system, uh, I would say. The only, I mean, the, the thing is, the terrifying thing, but who knows, because the results are so hypothetical, it could conceivably work out to Pakistan's advantage, is that this whole World Bank report looks at the future even without factoring in the hypothetical effects of climate change. This is just as things are now that the, the future looks so worrying. Now, of course, climate change, extremely unpredictable. Um, most versions suggest that things will become much more extreme. It could, however, lead to an increased monsoon or increased snowfall in the Himalayas, uh, which could improve the situation, but only, only, of course, if um, Pakistan is capable of harvesting that effectively. On the other hand, when it comes to the resilience of the existing system, something that, that's very interesting, and it shows once again you know, that the existing system works in traditional ways up to a fashion, is that the floods of last year were much less devastating than much of the Western media coverage and predictions had it. Casualties were remarkably low. I mean, 1,500... That's terrible, but then this is South Asia, you know? I mean, there have been far, far worse ones. And damage to, to infrastructure was surprisingly little. The reason was that the traditional system worked. The barrages held. They didn't break. They protected the cities. The water was diverted into floodplains, the designated floodplains. Now, it's true that those floodplains had been illegally um, occupied uh, by millions of people. But then these millions of people weren't complete idiots. They knew they were living in floodplains. That is something that you know in your heart if you live anywhere near the River Indus. So, of course, when they saw the floods coming, they, they got out. Losses of livestock were tremendous, but losses of, of human life and infrastructure were less than expected. So the, the old system worked. But the question is, can the old system change and develop? Okay. Look up. Yeah, I will in a minute. Hi. Uh, you mentioned about the U.S. losing its temper and causing destruction of Pakistan. Did you imply uh, we are some form of invasion? And if so, given your wonderful understanding of the society, how sustainable that invasion would be for even for a few days, given yeah. the population and the sentiments locally? Well, I mean, what I, the, the scenario that I, I would fear would be something like this. Um, God forbid, you know, one, one shudders even to mention such possibilities, but a successful terrorist attack on the United States uh, linked to Pakistan in some way, especially, of course, if there were any link um, to uh, groups historically tied to the Pakistani military, like Lashkari Taiba. Um, different perhaps if at least this was seen in the first instance to be linked to groups which are 
um, fighting against Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban. But of course here, once again, all these suspicions about bin Laden have made Pakistan's position considerably worse when it comes to American public opinion. That under pressure from public opinion, um, whether a Republican administration, a Democratic administration in the run-up to elections, would feel compelled to take some form of radical action. And this could consist of either um, fairly prolonged ground raids into Fatah, into the federally administered tribal areas, uh, in an effort to capture or kill um, al-Qaeda, Taliban, and other leaders, um, and or uh, an extension of drone attacks and missile attacks to northern Baluchistan, and conceivably, of course, and this is what much of Pakistani public opinion believes Raymond Davis was about, um, targets in Pakistan's main cities in Lahore and elsewhere. Um, well, air attacks would con contribute enormously to radicalizing much of the population of Pakistan. Prolonged ground raids, and I mean prolonged because not just very quick in and out, um, would risk an even more terrifying possibility, which is that the Pakistani army would feel so humiliated that either by a decision of the generals or even worse, a decision of the soldiers on the ground, they would actually decide to fight. Um, if you've got the army as a whole fighting America, when we are in, to put it mildly, new territory. Um, if, as I've been told by everybody from lieutenants to a lieutenant general, uh, you had mutinies by Pakistani soldiers because they found the humiliation of this simply too great to bear, um, well, then you would have the one thing that has never happened in Pakistan. You'd have a, an actual split in the army. Um, a mutiny by part of the army against the, uh, the, the generals. Now, if that happened, I think you could see Pakistan collapsing as a state very quickly in some circumstances. Because as soon as you know, malcontents, potential rebels, saw that they had part of the military on their side, things could go downhill pretty fast. As I say, thank God, I mean, analysts in America know this, uh, which is why something like this hasn't happened already. Equally, uh, a great many people, well, including within the Pentagon, have said that, I mean, obviously, depending on the scale of the attack in America, uh, but a very harsh American response would, in fact, be pretty likely. Okay, so I take question from over. Go ahead. Yes, um, thank you. I enjoyed your talk very much. Um, and I was basically wondering, um, about the extent to which you might actually be somewhat overemphasizing the stability-creating effects of this patronage system. Because, um, you know, I, I did field work in the Pakistani Punjab as an anthropologist, and, and uh, one thing that I noticed, you, you know, you mentioned these degs and all this. What everyone is, was saying when I was there was that this is disappearing, basically. The landlords are moving to the cities. Uh, many, you know, the Green Revolution has made many local uh, jobs defunct. And uh, so there's this sort of thing about landlords no longer providing this patronage. So on the one hand, I think, you know, and, and evidence from SWAT and by Mariam Buzahab on southern Punjab seems to indicate yes. that actually the class grievances which are being expressed through these, uh, you know, militant movements, which seem to indicate a decline in patronage ties. And the other thing, of course, is that these patronage ties allow an elite to capture the state and use it to actually oppress people. 
So control over the police means you can keep bonded laborers and things like that. So anyways, I, I mean, I, I sort of agree with you, but I'm wondering if there hasn't been really a change and what you're describing is maybe right for prior to the Green Revolution and whether these patronage ties really haven't been eroded. Yeah. Well, you may well be right. Um, I can only say that it seems to be progressing relatively slowly. Um, uh, changes are no doubt uh, happening. Um, it also, of course, depends very much on where you are. I mean, within Punjab, there are huge differences, of course, between north-central Punjab, well, even between central Punjab and, uh, you know, and the Potwar Plateau, and southern Punjab. Uh, but th that is in part why you know, I also emphasized the two factors of um, kinship and protection. It isn't clear to me that as yet, even if the power of these you know, tr traditional bosses is declining, that it's actually being replaced by anything else. And after all, from that point of view, it, it's very important to note that in Punjab, of course, much, much less so in Sindh or Baluchistan, but to some considerable extent in the NWFP, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, sorry, um, the land reforms of Ayub and Bhutto did actually greatly reduce many of the old, really big landowners, the Noons, the Tiwanas, and so forth, they were actually, to a considerable extent, replaced by a class of much smaller landowners. Um, after all, as you know, I mean, 200 acres is a big estate in, in Punjab by now, in parts of Punjab. And yet, as I say, once again, that's why I brought in Pettigrew, the, the, the basic structures of political behavior, of leadership, <laughs> did not fundamentally change as a result in, in many ways. To replace the existing system, one would have to have a new class of leadership and a new form of politics to in which it was bearing. Now, you, you mentioned Swat, and you're, of course you're entirely right. Um, in Swat, the, the, the Khans were, to a great extent, driven out. And I, I was there in March, and many of them have not come back, or they will come back for a few days, and then they'll scuttle off again to Peshawar or, or Islamabad, or whatever. But what is striking is that the alternative leadership was provided by the TNSM and the local Taliban. But... Of course, Swat is a very particular area. Um, it's not in Fata, uh, but it was a princely state. Um, it has very particular traditions. There are deep local factors for militancy, um, both in terms of uh, the local judicial tradition, also in terms of the local quasi-ethnic composition, if you will, with the Gujars and the Kamis and the Yusufzai Pashtuns. And so far, I must say, I haven't seen indications during my travels that parts of Punjab are close to replicating a, an actual rebellion of that kind. 
And absent such a rebellion, and absent a political force um, which could actually go into the countryside and mobilize and gather people behind an agenda of change, which one doesn't see uh, as yet, um, even if the, the, uh, the old system is in many ways decay and declining, I don't see quite what is going to push it over, if you see what I mean, or, or replace it. But, of course, you're entirely right. I, I mean, the, the system is changing. But I would say, and of course I may be wrong, um, pretty slowly in, in many ways. Right. Uh, thank you very much. Um, my question is, uh, given um, uh, your research in Pakistan, um, and Pakistan is of course a nuclear state, so the direction the state takes is of great concern to the whole world. Uh, where do you think, in, in a very simple, simple question, where do you think that Pakistan is going? Is it going to become a secular liberal state? <laughs> is it going to become an Islamic state? Or is it going to further descend into chaos and disintegrate? Thanks. Um, it, it, I mean, the thing is, it, it, it's never going to be a, a secular liberal state. I mean, the, the, the simply, I mean, the population is is in no way, um, as a whole, desirous of anything like that. Um, it would require, you know, I mean, that would require changes in in personal and familial behaviour. The mere suggestion of which in much of Pakistan would, in fact, provoke a revolution. It's not going to happen. Um, and good lord, look at the the you know the reaction to the murder of Salman Taseer, alas. Um, on the other hand, uh, if by an Islamist state you mean, uh, you know, a quasi-totalitarian one with, uh, you know, rooted in a particular religious tradition, um, Wahhabi, Deobandi, Wahhabi-influenced, uh, although, I mean, there too, society is changing, the multiplicity of different religious traditions in Pakistan interacting with and reinforced, of course, by the fact that quite unlike um, Iran uh, or Saudi Arabia, uh, Pakistan is a very multi-ethnic country, uh, mean that it, it, I mean, if in very peculiar circumstances an Islamist revolution, and it, I mean, I, th I think it, that would also perhaps take the Americans to do something really wild, to bring that about, um, an Islamist revolution were to topple the central state, that the result would not be a united Iranian-style quasi-theocracy. The result would be disintegration and chaos. Uh, it would be much closer to, I mean, not exactly Somalia. Parts of it would resemble Somalia. Um, parts of it would resemble Lebanon. What it would certainly resemble would be a colossal mess in which endless local groups would be fighting each other. Um, it was interesting from that point of view that, um, it, as, as those of you who know Pakistan, I'm sure know, there is this, um, as far as I can see, completely baseless, I mean, no evidence has been uh, produced to, to show that this is true, uh, belief that India is supporting the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, this is something which the, uh, the, the army has been putting out assiduously, uh, basically for, for the sake of, of uh, improving morale uh, among its own soldiers. You know that, because of course, as so many soldiers have told me, you know, we don't like fighting our own people. You know, the people we really want to fight or guard against are the Indians. So of course, the best way of squaring that circle is to say, well, right, you, it, you know, they may call themselves the Pakistani Taliban, but actually they are Indians.
Williams. So anyway, and it works. It works. It's done wonders for morale. Uh, but it's so, it was so interesting that this time when I talked to Barelvi leaders, uh, sorry, this gets a, leaders of um, a religious tradition in, in Pakistan, uh, very much attached to the shrines, the hereditary saints, and so forth, um, uh, and uh, respect for them. One mustn't say worship among the Barelvis. Um, and they have come under savage attack uh, from the, uh, the Pakistani Taliban and their allies in recent years. Dreadful terrorist attacks on uh, Barelvi shrines. It was so interesting, talking to the Barelvi leaders, you didn't get any of this nonsense about the Pakistani Taliban being Indian agents. No, they said these are just these damned Vahabis, you know, who've hated us for 250 years and are pursuing their old, you know, savage uh, Vahabi agendas. So, um, yeah. Uh, very, you know, a, a multiplicity of uh, of different um, religious traditions. Okay, over there. I love the idea of hereditary sainthood, by the way. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, it may be difficult to imagine a liberal and secular Pakistan, and so uh, we will tend to dismiss it. But I think we should take a note of this fact also that it's never India which such intense diversity and but secular uh, political system has been able to what you call somehow use the political system to modernize itself and uh, i mean the tradition uh, you know, I mean, india is also uh, traditionally in a similar uh, position as pakistan so this fact i think should be note, taken note of that the that what you call secular india has been able to what you call um, well, bring, uh, bring social progress, and the uh, and uh, Pakistan, which is a bit more homogeneous. I mean, India is a so diverse country. So I think we should take a note again that uh, what what would be the role of uh, secularism? Would secularism help the political process in Pakistan to modernize itself? Thank you. Uh, well, I mean, it would if it could happen, um, but 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 I see. Uh, I see very few signs that it can, in fact, happen. Um, the Pakistan People's Party, of course, is the principal bearer of some kind of sec vaguely secular message uh, among the main political parties. Uh, but you see it repeatedly backing off uh, when faced with resistance from religion, you know, from uh, religious opposition uh, to um, any kind of... Um, serious reform. And of course, when it comes to a key aspect of uh, progress in general in Pakistan, uh, which is rights of women and women's education, well, if you look at some very, very notorious cases, the PPP has been utterly useless in that regard, uh, in part because the local forces who have been responsible for these atrocities are heavily represented within the PPP itself and dominate it in certain areas. Um, so I'm not optimistic on that. I mean, the other thing about India, of course, is that uh, you, you, you said, of course, the thing about India is, I expect you've all noticed this, it is rather big. Um, in fact, it's very big. And it contains an enormous multiplicity uh, of different traditions, some of which have, of course, extremely ancient commercial traditions. 
uh, you could almost say that you know uh, co commercial traditions of, of commerce and uh, perhaps equally importantly of certain kinds of education almost comparable in, in certain respects to the, the Jews of Europe when particular restrictions self-imposed, externally imposed were removed um, now India's very, very impressive development uh, has therefore been to a certain extent patchy. Uh, of course, as I point out in my book, India is act a, a much greater part of India is controlled by a rebellion at present uh, than ever has been in Pakistan. That's the Naxalites. We don't notice them because they're not attacking the West and they're not attacking the cities. But in terms of actual control on the ground, the Maoist rebellion in India, rooted, of course, in areas and among people who have not benefited from India's recent capitalist revolution, uh, is very powerful indeed. And I think it's worth pointing out from that point of view that if, Indi if Pakistan were a, a state of India, it would be somewhere in the middle um, considerably below, of course far below Kerala, um, Karnataka with Bangalore, considerably below, less so but considerably below um, uh, Maharashtra, but I think I'm right in saying still considerably above Bihar, for example, or Madhya Pradesh. So you, you see what I mean? Now, regrettably from that point of view, and nothing is fixed, nothing is fixed in stone, things can change. But of course, from that point of view, it must be said that, um, well, you remember Jinnah's uh, phrase that what he got was a moth-eaten Pakistan. You know, he did get, in many ways, the scrag end of the subcontinent. Uh, and one where the traditional commercial classes, of course, had been overwhelmingly Hindu. Uh, even in Punjab, but um, very, very much in Sindh. And, you know, if, the, the names have been changed, but if you look at the old maps of so, so much of the Pashtun areas, you'll find a whole number of places called Hindu Bazaar, the reason being that the Hindus wear the bazaar. 47, all that ended, and they were all driven out. Uh, Pakistan um, replaced this to some extent, of course, uh, with people from India, especially Gujaratis. <laughs> but that is why Karachi looks so very, very different to the rest of the country. Um, Elsewhere, the commercial traditions which were destroyed in 1947 have not yet been restored, unfortunately. Um, and they, they may be. They, they, may, they may be. I mean, once again, yes, things are changing. But, uh, you know, as I say, with the, with the water looming uh, in future, it, it could be a race against time and a race where Pakistan is at present not running as fast as it needs to be, in my view. Right. Now, this will be the last question, so okay, the lady over there. Um, but I, I will be signing uh, books afterwards, so anyone who wants right. to ask me no more questions you can, 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 come, can come and ask me. Americans seem uncertain as to whether Pakistan's failure to hand over bin Laden was the result of um, incompetence or betrayal. Which is your money on? Well, <clears throat> First, I, I don't. I, I try to avoid terms like betrayal because it's all, always worth remembering. And uh, Americans forget this. We also forget this. Um, they forget it about everywhere. They forget it about Russia. They forget it about Pakistan. And anywhere else. That after all, a Pakistani officer 
or official has not sworn an oath of allegiance to the United States. He's sworn it to Pakistan. Now, that is not to say, of course, that his version of what is in Pakistan's national interests um, is either necessarily correct uh, or is without enormous elements both of self-interest and of possibly of, of fanaticism and hysteria. But I still think betrayal is a word one should perhaps try to avoid. But, I mean, if, if it comes to the question of whether it was incompetence or, um, or shelter, I have to say that on the basis of my knowledge, I would allow perhaps as much as one chance in three uh, or more that it was incompetence. Um, one can never rule this out. You know, um, it's a huge country. Hiding in plain sight, as you say, may have, as they say, may have been the best option. Um, it is a possibility, but it looks damned fishy to me. I have to say, it really does look very fishy. And above all, the reason is uh, not not necessarily because they were looking for Bin Laden, um, but because uh, so many Pakistani inst military institutions have been attacked by Pakistani terrorists. GHQ in Rawalpindi, headquarters of the ISI in Lahore, provincial headquarters, um, the depot of the, of the Punjab regiment in Mardan, and so forth and so on. This house looks like a place that would have been checked or should have been checked in Abbottabad as a potential launching pad for an attack. Uh, and if the, uh, the ISI or MI, because of course everyone talks about the ISI as if it's the only Pakistani intelligence service, it isn't. But if they didn't check it, why not? Well, I mean, there are two possibilities. Um, the, the first, which might seem more terrifying, is if possible actually less terrifying, weirdly enough, and that is that it was an order from the top to shelter him. If so, I believe that it was um, as a bargaining counter that they were going to hand him over to the Americans sooner or later as part of a deal, you know, possibly to buy, to, to, to get America to release aid. Um, you know, all this talk about perhaps handing him over before the next US presidential elections and so forth. Um, but, but then it would have been a pragmatic decision at the top, not, I believe, a decision to actually support terrorism against the West. A much more terrifying possibility is if it was, in fact, a plot from somewhere within the ISI and motivated by ideology. Um, that would be actually more frightening because, as I say, the, the, the ultimate nightmare is actually a mutiny within the army. Um, as long as the, the army and the ISI uh, is under the control of the generals, there are threats that can be brought to bear on them, you know, uh, to keep them in some kind of line. These people are, after all, dedicated to the survival of Pakistan's estate. They have to be. They have been told, and I think they believe it, that a terrorist attack on, a really major terrorist attack on America based in Pakistan would endanger the existence of Pakistan by the severity of America's reaction, if it were big enough. Um, so, so, you know, of course, I don't know the answer. Um, but those are my, my, my gut feelings on the subject. A chance um, that it was incompetence, but the balance of probability that somebody within the, um, somebody within the security establishment did know about it. Um, with. Uh, and uh, as I say, this is, um, this is very bad uh, because um, uh, 
Look, I mean, on the one hand, one does have to say they were in a difficult position um, because, of course, handing him over to America uh, would have to be, well, let's be frank, tortured and then executed would have been extremely unpopular in Pakistani public opinion. Uh, and there is, there is a fourth possibility, um, though nothing coming out of America actually suggests that was true, that there was, in you know, one of the conspiracy theories floating around is, is that there was, in fact, a covert deal, that they were much more helpful to America than has appeared, and that everyone is keeping this quiet because they know how unpopular it would be in Pakistan. That's one of the theories floating around, but as I say, there is no actual evidence for this that has come out so far. Um, but... Uh, they um, they have got themselves into a terrible position there. Uh, they're humiliated domestically by what happened, uh, and at the same time, of course, distrust of them in American public opinion and Congress uh, has reached levels which, if God forbid, there were a terrorist attack on the United States, would put Pakistan in a very dangerous position. I mean, that's why I think public opinion or no public opinion, um, they would be very, very well advised from now on to do everything in their power to find Zawahiri um, and other al-Qaeda leaders, but principally Zawahiri because he's now the last al-Qaeda name that anyone in America can remember, um, and hand him over. Well, thank you very much, and let me end this meeting with, with a vote of thanks for a splendid talk. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Also, I have an announcement to make on 26th of May. Professor Leila Ahmed from Harvard University will be giving a talk following the trail of Islamism and the veil across time and borders. So in the same place, same time, starting at 6.30 on 26th of May. <laughs>